Fab Lab Podcast, Economic Forecast Update, Interview with Taylor St. Germain. Welcome to the Fab Lab, the stone industry's only podcast dedicated exclusively to the business side of your stone shop, where we focus on improving operations inside the business so we can experience more life outside of it. So let's get down to business. Welcome back to another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Crowley, and I'm so glad to be tuned in with you on this 99th episode. And this is a really, really fantastic interview that we had with Taylor St. Germain. You know, he was on the program about a month, maybe five weeks ago. Very end of March, you know, it was a very different time. Only four or five weeks has transpired since the last time he was on. But a lot has changed in terms of the economy and a lot has changed in terms of the forecast for 2020 and 2021. And so Taylor came on, let us interview him again, and it is really insightful. And you're going to really benefit from hearing this interview. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad that you tuned in. Before we get to that interview, I just want to mention a word from our sponsor, FabricatorsFriend.com. Now, on one hand, the economic forecast is, uh, you know, forecasting dark skies, cloudy skies, rainy days ahead, at least for the foreseeable future. On the other hand, we're entering late spring and early summer, which means the weather's turning nicer. It's getting warmer. Used to be that the stone sleeve fabricator sleeves were really a wintertime product. Not anymore. With the advent of quartz and the resins in the quartz and the advent of fiberglass mesh being basically on the back of virtually every granite slab, stone sleeves are now a year-round product. If you want to keep those resins and you want to keep that fiberglass off of your employees who are out there fabricating in your shop, you need to get them a pair of stone sleeves, fabricator sleeves. And while you're at it, you got to get them a bulletproof apron and a fab coat. And you can get those fantastic custom-made stone fabrication products, that custom fabrication gear at fabricatorsfriend.com. You can buy them at all your local, regional, and national stone tooling suppliers, but you can also buy them direct at fabricatorsfriend.com. So make sure you check them out. Make sure you support our sponsors because they make the Fab Lab podcast possible. And make sure you visit AaronCrowley.com. If you haven't been to AaronCrowley.com to download the first three chapters of my book, Less Chaos, More Cash, you need to do so. If you want to manage your employees in this economic upheaval. You may be laying people off. You may be having to reassign tasks to fewer positions within the company right now in the short term. And what a better way to manage that transition effectively is through effective delegation, which is what I talk about in my book, Less Chaos, More Cash. So visit AaronCrowley.com to pick up the first three chapters for free. You can download it right there. So without further ado, let's get into this interview with Taylor St. Germain, financial analyst with ITR Economics. Hi, Taylor. Welcome back to the Fab Lab podcast. Hi, thanks very much for having me back. You know, this is a, a milestone for sure. You are the only guest to have been invited back for a second, uh, a second interview. And so I, it says a lot about uh, just how your first interview was received. It went, went really well. So thank you for coming back. Well, I appreciate it. I wish I had better news coming back the second time, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be the case. Well, we're going to get to that, and uh, I suspected as much, and that's why I'm so glad that you were willing to come back on and talk to us, because it seems like a lot's changed, even in the short, you know, four or five weeks since we talked last. And so, before we get into that, there's just been a couple of uh, uh, thoughts on my mind. Just curious about you. I was wondering, uh, you know, your name, St. Germain, uh, Taylor St. Germain. I'm just curious, what's the, you know, the family history or the historical background on that name? It's kind of unique. 
Yeah, it is. And uh, many people might see the or, or immediately recognize that it's from it's Parisian. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain, the soccer team. Uh, of course, there is Saint-Germain, France. Um, so my family did uh, immigrate from France to Canada originally. And then they worked their way down okay. into uh, Vermont, which is where I'm originally from. So, yep, uh, very uh, uh, the French historical background, one of the oldest families in France. So, pretty cool. Wow, no kidding. That's mm -hmm. Does your family really retain that? Is that something that they've held on to and, and you know, just tried to continue? Yeah, they, they have. My great-grandma was the last one that spoke fluent French. My grandma still knows French, but then uh, with my parents and myself, it, uh, it fell off a bit. So I'm actually in the process of relearning it right now. Um, oh, cool. It's fun taking some French classes on the side, but, uh, but yeah, we, we have been bad, uh, bad at holding up the family history as of late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any any like family mathematicians or uh, economists or financial analysts in the uh, the lineage so my my father is actually an engineer um okay. and so yep he's the director of engineering at a defense contracting firm oh, um wow. so the math the math and the stem degree has always been in the future from from the beginning okay very good well, that's cool mm -hmm. so i'm curious when you're not reading you know, financial data, which I imagine comprises some significant portion of your day-to-day, -day, you know, work. What, what are you reading outside of work? What, what interests you um, outside the math uh, and the numbers? Mm -hmm. I, I've read almost every Malcolm Gladwell book. So psychology is something that interests me, just the way people operate. And of course, that helps as a presenter and public speaker. So it does kind of go hand in hand with the work. Um, but uh, a lot of psychology. And then I'm just a, a fitness fanatic. So any type of training or okay. sports book, uh, that, that's kind of the other half of my interest. Oh, very, very cool. I just finished the Outliers book here not too long ago, nice. which mm -hmm. I found. That was the first, first book of his I'd ever read. And man, he's a great author and, and so insightful. But I seems like he's written another one since that. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't Talking with Strangers is, uh, I, I believe, yeah. I, I hope I didn't get that title wrong, but I, I'm actually about halfway through that right now. And I know a lot of the business leaders that I talk to are reading it right now too. So I know it's a big one. Oh, that's cool. That was going to be my next question. What are you reading right now? So that, uh, that answers that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I heard him interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast and he talked a lot about mm -hmm. that book. I haven't read it, but man, what a, a jarring uh, story, you know, to tell. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's one of a kind. I've um, got a lot of respect for him. So, so cool mm -hmm. fitness. And, uh, and you could say that Malcolm Gladwell is still kind of a data guy. He's, he's looking into yeah. the, the numbers behind the numbers. And uh, yeah. so that, that makes a lot of sense. So, oh, well, that's cool. So what, how about, um, you know, outside of fitness, any outdoor activities that you uh, gravitate towards? Yeah, you know, growing up in, in New England, I grew up in the Green Mountains of Vermont. So it was always hiking, trail running, um, wasn't much of a, uh, of, of a hunter into fishing, but most of my friends that I grew up around were, so I certainly know how to shoot a gun. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, I, I played, I was a multi-sport athlete growing up my whole life too. So it was anything with hiking outdoors and team sports. Okay. 
Oh, very cool. Well, thanks for letting us kind of diverge into that dimension yeah. of your life a little bit. Just, uh, um, you know, we're going to get into the realityville here pretty soon. So it's nice to just kind of set the stage, get a sense of where you're coming mm -hmm. from. And so you know, we talked about your uh, family history, kind of the heritage, the lineage there. History's mm -hmm. sort of been on my mind as, as the last four or five weeks has unfolded. There have been a lot of references to this 1918 pandemic, more so mm -hmm. related just to the you know, the impact in terms of the health and, and the, the social distancing and the sheltering in place and how to prevent the, the you know, rapid or massive spread of those diseases. So the mm -hmm. thought that's been on my mind is, are there any, you know, uh, relevant comparisons from an economic standpoint, you know, was that, that was a hundred, you know, years ago. Is there any correlation there in terms of looking at what happened to the economy, you know, in 1918, 1920, that would shed light on what's going on today? Yeah, and you know, we we've looked at a lot of a lot of these. You know, we we look at the Spanish flu, we've looked at swine flu, bird flu, Ebola, and and seen how they compare to this COVID nineteen situation. And uh, unfortunately, though, those precedents were in terms of their fatality rates or the number, you know, how contagious they were, just uh, are, are were completely different. You know, to put it put it in perspective, you know. The bird flu wasn't as contagious as what we're seeing, but it, the fatality rate was much higher. So, uh, you know, the Spanish flu was, again, more fatal, but not as contagious as what we're seeing. So there are some similarities historically. And so our next step was, instead of looking at these diseases and outbreaks historically, let's look at events that were just completely unprecedented. Things like 9-11 in particular, you know, when, when okay. our, our lives all changed as they're changing now, and we never thought we'd return to a normal situation. So we looked at not just the interruptions from a pandemic standpoint, but also just other natural disasters and, and events that have occurred. And uh, this one is unique because not only do we have the COVID-19 situation, but we also have a second black swan event with oil prices. So this is this is more of a double black swan event. So it's it's tough to compare mm -hmm. to historical precedents because we have two different, completely different factors going on that are driving all of this uh, economic uncertainty and negativity right now. So while there are some similarities that we can compare to uh, from both perspectives, it's uh, you know there's not one event that you can say it's going to shape out like this. So that makes your job a little bit more challenging. There's no easy <laughs> answers, no template to uh, to run off of here. You're having to, gosh, just learn as you go. So you you mentioned the you know the oil in the last ep or the last time we talked. You know that this um, the oil was kind of in and of itself a factor, but you know how has that changed in the four or five weeks since we've talked? Just that in in and of itself that oil price collapse what's going on in the Middle East and in Russia, what's going on here, what, what's that looking like? How's that changing? Mm -hmm. Well, it, since we last talked, the, our, our oil forecast has been lowered uh, in terms of the dollar per barrel expectation that we're expecting. The last time we talked, we, we figured uh, about $20 per barrel throughout the year, getting close to 30 by the end of the year. We're now in the, the mid-teens throughout the middle of this year, really only getting close to that 20 per barrel by the end of the year. 
Um, so it is much lower. And of course, since the last time we talked, we had that day of negative oil prices, which was a historic right. day, of course, and minus 37, I think, was where it came in at the low for that day, which is just something that, uh, you know, even the oil companies that, that we work with, we're not expecting to see. So that was a, a big blow to uh, to all of us. And the, the price just continues to stay low. And that, of course, was the result of, you know, Saudi Arabia does continue to um, just to flood the market with some cheap oil. Now they've, of course, OPEC and Saudi Arabia and Russia and the U.S., you know, there's been some agreements on cuts. But the big question is, is do people actually follow through with them? Do we just because we're saying we're going to do something, do we actually do that? And uh, what we found is that's not always the case. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there in, in, in the oil um, uh, folks that we work with say, this is just something that they've never seen before in all of their time that they've worked with in the industry. So um, it, it's likely that oil is going to remain low and that just is bad news for the overall industrial economy. And uh, we've, we've lowered our industrial production forecast as a result. Um, and, you know, on a year over year basis, we do expect that uh, that rate of change is declining into the into early next year at this point. So is that kind of a double whammy with, you know, everybody sheltering in place? And, you know, right now, yeah. we were talking before we started recording, you know, about how bad traffic is in Portland. Actually, right now, it's great. You know, you can get anywhere you want with no <laughs> delays. He's driving. So, you know, it, is this a domino type effect? So artificially low prices mm -hmm. coming out of the Middle East and then lower demand, you know, has got to be affecting these oil companies. But what their health, the health of these oil companies, what role does that play on the overall economy? I mean, do they, are they big enough player to, to send a ripple of a negative ripple effect through the rest of the economy? Because I would think that cheap oil prices would mean cheap gas, which would leave more money in yeah. the consumer's pocket, theoretically. But I, what, what does that really look like? Right. And you would think, but with nobody being able to drive anywhere, that, that's really the downside because the, you know, the consumers aren't spending, aren't buying this low, you know, the cheap gas right now because nobody's going anywhere. Um, so the transportation industry and, and the automotive markets are, you know, are, are getting hit equally as hard. I know automotive retail sales uh, was, you know, the February to March percent change, I think, was the worst since the Great Depression. Um, so, wow. it, you know, it's, it's uh, and that was the same with the industrial production data. The February to March percent change was the worst since 1933. So, and while that's only one data point, you know, that, that's just one month of data, uh, uh, obviously it's still significant. So, um, you, you, that's, of we can't take advantage of the cheap prices. And to get back to your original question, uh, when you look at industrial production, about 75% of industrial production is manufacturing. The other 25% is oil and gas mining and utilities. And we saw in 15 and 16, when oil behaved this way and fell below $30 per barrel, that did put the industrial economy in a recession. So these low commodity prices alone can put that industrial economy in a recession like we saw in 15 and 16. And given that they're behaving even worse and, and are much lower than where they were in 15 and 16, before we're feeling even more pain, uh, even compared to that recession right now. Hmm. So if a, a sector of the economy is large enough in and of itself and experiences enough of a decline overall, it can actually put the entire economy you know, into a technical, you know, or by definition, a recession because it, it drags the, 
the growth or there is no growth, you know, when it's all balanced at the end right. of the day. Right. And, and especially with something like oil, the U.S. is still very reliant on oil for, uh, you know, most all of our, you know, industrial industry still, especially the heavy industrials. So until uh, the U.S. does start to find alternate sources, which is certainly not a conversation I'm going to get involved in, but uh, <laughs> for political reasons, um, but uh, uh, we, we still rely on oil so much that uh, a market like oil in particular uh, behaving this way can put us into a recession which even trickles down to the the consumer which is you know really right. from a stone fabrication standpoint you know we're serving the consumer market and we you know what we saw when we talked last what was that third maybe beginning of the fourth week of march first half of march we were at budget or february we killed we were like i don't know 15 percent above budget first half of march we were at budget by the end of the third week first of the fourth week our second half of march was declining but overall you know we still finished the month like at 65 70 percent of budget so the, the doom and gloom didn't seem to be reflected yet at that point fast forward to today sales in april off six about two-thirds you know we closed yeah. about a third of the business in april that we need to to, to close to sustain the, the business as it is right now and so from a i'm just curious does the data you know, can you can you parse it down to say, you know, is is the sheltering in place that's forcing people to stay home so they just can't go out and spend money? Or or can you determine whether or not it is a truly psychological or lack of confidence reason that the consumer isn't spending? And I know that's kind of deviating off of the oil topic, but um, yeah, can you differentiate? Is, is the data that clear to really uh, distinguish between those two, you know, factors? Well, and it, it is in a way, and you know, we, we look at retail, re, total retail sales is a series that we forecast. Um, and, you know, it, the dynamic with retail sales right now is that the, of course, as you would imagine, e-commerce is performing well, um, but e-commerce can't, really can't even keep up with the demand. They certainly weren't prepared from a capacity <laughs> perspective for this. Um, but overall retail sales, uh, when we look at the weekly data, it has already gone negative. So to your point, and especially department stores, when we look at weekly data was down like 39% the last time I looked at it, which is the worst in a couple decades at this point. It hmm. uh, might even be the worst in history, uh, just looking at the data stream that I have. And um, so the, you know, the Macy's, Best Buy's, those retailers of the world are, are really just getting destroyed because of the shelter in place situation. So I, I do think that there is, um, a concern about confidence, you know, there's a lot of consumers out there that, uh, you know, even the $1,200 check that they're receiving from the government is not enough. And, and they've made that very clear, especially this last week with the protests of the governors and some of the town halls that have been held, that that's just not enough. So I think it, it's both. It's, uh, you know, there are people that still have jobs, you know, like myself, that would be, uh, you know, that's saving some good money right now uh, because I'm not spending on anything. I'm, you know, I wake up every day and walk down the hall to my office and that's about <laughs> the extent of my day. Um, so um, it's good news for when things open back up, but you have, you know, people like me who, are, who aren't spending money. And then there, there's obviously the, the other side of the coin of the people that lost their jobs. And I would imagine that they're concerned about just paying rent rather than spending that money in retail sales, which is why we see the data going so negative. Hmm. When you say negative, that's just a moment ago, you said, you know, the, for sure the worst, 
you know, retail declines in a couple of decades, maybe ever. You know, you said a couple of times already, it's the worst since the Great Depression, talking about auto sales and all. There's, is that a theme here? I mean, those are some pretty dramatic, you know, statements about the economic, you know, situation. Um, and yet it still seems, I, 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 even though it's, I can see it happening in our own business, it doesn't feel like that. I, I, I don't get that sense that the, in the air, mm -hmm. it's the worst that it's ever been. So why is that? I mean, maybe right. so, I'm, I'm ignorant and... <laughs> no, no, no. And, and, and just, just to clarify too, that, that weekly data that I was referring to for retail sales of the worst in a while, that's not what the, you know, that's just, you know, that's weekly data. So when we back up and look at the forecast, the overall forecast from a 12-12 standpoint, we still don't expect to be as bad as 0809. So the, the steepness is really what I'm talking about here in, in the overall data. It, it, we do expect the second quarter drop-off to be steeper than 0809. But the reason it's not 0809 in terms of how low we're going is because we don't expect this to last as long. Okay. Um, so we're, we're all going to feel a really steep decline in the second quarter, and it might feel in the second quarter worse than 2008, 2009, but we think we're going to turn the corner much quicker and it's not going to last as long. So that's why it won't be as bad. Um, but, but again, to your point, it's when it, this second quarter is in many economics firms, many banks are, are all forecasting this catastrophic second quarter because of the shelter in place and because of the way that oil prices are behaving. And so I think as we move into the second quarter and deeper into the second quarter, it's really going to start to feel like doomsday for a lot of huh. people. And especially in the second quarter, you know, I think as we move, at least in overall GDP, as we move into the third and fourth quarter, as long as we start to open things up by June, which is sounds like the end of May and June is when the majority of the states are looking to slowly open back up. So as long as we open back up, we should see, uh, you know, some of the momentum start to build in, in the third and fourth quarter and overall GDP. It might take the industrials a bit longer because of the way oil prices are behaving. And that's how our forecast sort of plays out. Um, but I, I think the second quarter in particular is going to be a very painful one, um, especially if, if you burn are burning through a lot of your backlog early in the second quarter to try to, you know, in, inflate some of the sales that everyone's worried about what the pipeline looks like for the second and third quarter. And so I, I think it's, it, you know, we have some, I, I think everyone's going to feel some pain in, in the second quarter in particular, especially as that pipeline starts to run dry. But we're, we've all, we've always been talking about this V shaped recovery. And that's a term a lot of economists are using out there. And that's what we expect here compared to more of a, a U-shaped recovery we've had coming out of previous recessions. And the reason for that is all of the fundamentals for the economy are still there right now. You know, the, the, it's not 0809 where the credit markets are dried up and we need the banks to get bailed out. And, you know, the banks are in good position. The Fed's taking the right steps. The government's trying to stimulate the economy with money. So we have all the fundamentals there. So that's why we see a V-shape instead of a long U-shaped recovery, because once we open up the economy again, we should turn the corner and take right back off. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why it's not 0809 again, because, you know, we, all the fundamentals are still in place. It's not an 0809 situation right now. Well, I, that might bear just repeating one more time. <laughs> I was like, I'll, can I, I just want to hear that one, one more time, just to be sure. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so that when you say a V, is it a, is it a, 
historically, is it is it truly a uniform like mirror of the drop where it, I mean, is if it's going to have a dramatic drop in the second quarter where we're going to start feeling, and, and at least it's just anecdotal. This is our little business within our little, you know, isolated market. Yeah, we're burning yeah. through the backlog. The backlog is going to be pretty much burned through by the middle of this month. Um, right. And then it gets then it gets unclear as to what uh, the next two, four, six, eight weeks looks like. <laughs> but mm -hmm. what could you speculate, you know, and, and it's probably not wise to do so, but just for the sake of context, you know, when, when do you expect the, the V to bottom out? And then mm -hmm. at what point would you start to see it? Maybe if you're looking at the year second quarter, so we're in the second month of the second quarter here, just started today. What does that V look like over this year, 2020? Yeah, absolutely. And so it's a, it's a different story. Again, I, I like to separate it between GDP and the industrials just because they're, you know, if you're in the B2C space, focus on GDP. If you're in the B2B space, industrial production is your index. And the, as we expect the second quarter to be the most severe decline. Uh, and then the V starts to move up as we in GDP as we work later into this year. So that's coming slightly earlier than the industrials. However, we don't expect the actual dollar value of GDP to return to our 2019 record levels until we hit about late 2021 into 2022. Wow. So even though the momentum will start to build and that V will start to move up above zero, that it's going to take us a while to get back to those previous peak levels. Okay. And the same is, is largely true for the industrials, except we have the 12-12, the year-over-year -year low point for the industrials, actually late 2020, even possibly early 2021 is more likely at this point, given how oil prices are behaving. So it's going to take the industrials longer to come out of this and recover than what we're seeing for overall GDP. And But the story is similar. We do expect to return to record levels just like GDP, but that's not likely to occur until we move into that late 2021, early 2022 timeframe. So the momentum will build, but before we're all happy at our record levels, once again, it's when it takes a while to get back there. Okay. Yeah. I think when we talked last time, it was, yeah, 2020, there's going to be a recession. We're going to have a couple, maybe a couple of quarters of declining, uh, you know, GDP, but by the fourth quarter, maybe the first quarter of next year, we should be back to, you know, it was a pretty optimistic, you know, relative to the, the news that we were hearing at the time. So this looks like right. is delayed by a year in, in terms of being back to those previous levels. Right. And yeah, and you know, it's the, uh, it, when you, when you shift out the low points in a rate of change, it naturally is going to take longer for you to return to those previous levels. So um, it's just uh, the, the, the reality, and especially when we look at the indicators, of course, we don't forecast just off mathematics and statistical modeling. Well, that's certainly a part of it. We look at leading indicators and several, we, uh, you know, essentially, you know, two or three months ago, as I said on the last podcast, we had leading indicators that were all in rising trends. And that said by, you know, we were going to finish 2020 in positive. Um, and then this situation happened. And now some of that leading indicator evidence is starting to come through that's reflective of some of the COVID-19 and oil price impact. And many of those leading indicators have transitioned back down to decline. Mm. And so if you have leading indicators that are, you know, between eight and 14 months leading indicators transitioning back to decline, that suggests something like industrial production, the low points likely to be in 2021 rather than 2020. And so that's what we've seen, you know, some days like housing, for example, is a great indication of the overall economy. We, you can use housing starts as sort of a leading indicator for the economy. 
And the, again, it, I know it's technical, but the February to March percent change in single family housing starts was the worst in the 62 years of data history we have. That's the fourth, that's the fourth reference to the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in permits, which are lead starts, was the second worst in history. The only time being worse that was 1980, February to March. So it's, you know, the, and, and that's exactly what we're talking about. It's just, it's the second quarter. We're going to see this really steep drop off. And of course, we're all hoping that we can be healthy and open the economy up in June. And uh, as long as that happens, we should still get this nice V shape. But I think a lot of people are going to feel the second quarter look like 2008, 2009, or even potentially worse. It's just, uh, you know, if, if we take the right steps as a country, it's just likely not to last that long, especially with these strong fundamentals that we have. Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, that's, that's interesting. Talking about housing starts, you know, 08 and 09 were so unique because of, you know, the financial sector was so connected to housing and all the, the flaws that had existed in finance and mortgage-backed securities and just all that to me, it looks just like yeah. a gigantic mess. And so when that collapse occurred, home values just dropped like a rock. It, it, and, mm -hmm. and which from a retail, at least so retail in general, but more specifically for those of us who, who serve the home building at the retail level, right. I mean, it just, it was devastating. I mean, we mm -hmm. went from like 24 to nine employees um, because demand right. for you know, people just were I'm not going to spend, you know, five or $10,000 on a countertop when my house is worth a hundred thousand less than I owe on it. Right. So that was a very unique dynamic. Is there enough data yet at this point to see, and you talked about housing starts, how about just home values? Uh, is, is, is there any, you know, data that's relevant to, to suggest are those, are they holding steady? Are they declining? Well, what, what's, what's home values look like? Yeah, and, you know, of course, as, as we all know, the, the answer is going to be different regionally based on, on where you're located. You know, I, I still think that some of the areas that are seeing a lot of population growth are still are, will perform better. But I do think it's likely that over these next uh, nine months that we, we do see home values start to dip. Uh, the reason being, uh, you know, it's not something that we forecast consistently, but I look at 2008, 2009, our housing starts, you know, they were down about slightly over 50% year over year at the low point there. We did revise our, our single family housing starts forecast to be representative of about 20% down by the end of this year. Okay. Um, so if that was any barometer of how housing prices should behave, it is likely that we do see um, uh, some muted uh, uh, prices or, or values uh, over these this next year. However, again, just like the overall economy, the fundamentals are still in place for housing. Uh, you know, the mortgage rates are, are great. Delinquency rates on mortgages are under the 10-year average. So in 2008, 2009, they were about 10%, you know, 10% uh, were delinquent on their loans. You know, now it's still, it's still under 2% right now. So all the fundamentals are still in place for this to turn around. We have a V-shaped recovery in the housing market. So I think we could see a pause but with all of the economic growth that we're expecting over this next decade as a whole, 
um, I, you know, I, your house is, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to say that it's not going to be continue to grow throughout this next decade. We think single family housing is actually a great uh, equity building opportunity throughout this next decade. So it might be a pause, one that's longer than what we, what we expect and we could see valuations slump a bit, but with all the economic fundamentals in place, as we move into 21 and 2022, we should resume our nice rising trend in prices. Well, that's, uh, that's very comforting to hear. You know, I think most people, most mm -hmm. rational people that have, you know, relatively affluent, have some, you know, some money to spend, even if their home value takes a little bit of a dip, that's one thing compared to it being underwater. And, and that mm -hmm. sense of, you know, um, I'm not putting any money into this home uh, until you know, this looks better. That's very encouraging. That's uh, mm -hmm. so what are some of those lead? I'm just curious, you know, the, the leading indicators that you were mentioning, you know, what are some of those uh, that, that may not have, you know, come through your, you know, the data that you were looking at at the end of March? What, what changes have you seen? What are some of those indicators that came in after the last episode that you're now using and factoring into your models and, and forecasts? Sure. Uh, you know, we, we always start off with the global leading indicators. The global leading indicators have a nice long relationship to the industrial economy, to the general economy. And several of them, the OECD leading indicator, so that's the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. There's 36 countries in that organization, so it's a pretty good barometer of where the world's headed overall. Um, that is uh, it, it, the data weakened in March. Um, so that's one that we're watching, and that's a that's a 12 monthly or a 10 to 12 month leading indicator typically for us. So we always start off with the the longest leading indicators. We created the ITR financial leading indicator. Uh, we we create proprietary indicators. Um, uh, I hope any economics firm that you're working with creates in uh, proprietary leading indicators. That's sort of the standard for the industry now. And we created this financial leading indicator as a 14 month lead time to the U.S. economy, hmm. and we did continue to see that leading indicator decline. So that's one of our longest leading indicators that did transition to decline, which, of course, uh, you know, has us, you know, looking at those low points and being in 2021. Um, the Wilshire total market cap, so that's the stock market. As we all know, that, that transitioned back down to decline. Um, the OECD puts out a U.S. leading indicator, so it's U.S. specific. Um, picture a cliff. That's what happened to that one um, with it with the March data, unfortunately. Um, the, and uh, the other one is that's really important that we like for the manufacturing side of the economy in particular is a total industry capacity utilization rate. So you're basically looking at, you know, output over capacity. And that's about a six month leading indicator. It matches up very well to a lot of those industrial clients that I work with. And we did see that indicator transition back down to decline as well. So uh, we sort of a plethora of leading indicators. Um, you know, it's, we, we don't focus on just one, um, but the, the majority that were in rise, we are now seeing transition back to decline. So there still are some in rise uh, for the time being. You know, the, the purchasing managers index, one of everyone's favorites, the PMI. You know, it's down and back up and then slowly ticking down. So it's kind of giving us some uncertainty there. Um, but the majority did transition back to the to decline when we look at them as a as an aggregate. Hmm. With with some of, with that being said, you know, with the other industries that you serve and, and that, that call on you to, you know, um, advise them, are there any model industries, you know, that that 
you would you would point to to say this is an industry that is taking this data and responding in an optimal i mean not that anybody has a crystal ball or anybody really knows how to make decisions in these kind of circumstances mm -hmm. but can you point to an industry number one that, that you think is a model for others to follow in terms of responding in terms of preparing in terms of planning and positioning themselves and what might stone fabricators at the local level you know learn from that yeah you know i i i think that uh, i i'm still yet in this situation i think it's so early to find some but you know I, all the businesses we work with are uh you know re uh, reallocating the resources um focusing on markets that can grow um throughout this time and and i think that's where where the shift has to be um obviously uh you know for those people that had cash on hand, which is, you know, we, we inform people about the business cycles in 2019, even though it was a great time and people would think they should be investing with the record numbers they were most likely hitting in their business. It was the time to be building cash. Um, and, and I think you were going to continue to see people building cash where they can. Um, being just a couple of pieces of advice that we're giving people, I don't think there's necessarily a model industry to get back to your question at this point. I think everybody's still in the scrambling mode at, at this time. Um, but you know, this is a good time to be, have that good relationship with your banker. So you can take out those lines of credit. Um, that's something we talk about consistently when we were with our clients and, uh, that couldn't be important now. Um, and you have to look for those counter cyclical markets and the markets that are that'll grow. And uh, I know that that's certainly for your industry, but there are still certain areas of the country where you know public construction, commercial construction, some of the non-residential markets are still performing um, very well. Um, and um, and there are still areas where housing starts are performing. So it's more of a regional uh, situation, but. Uh, you know, the model industries right now, are, are the food industry is one of the best I think you can look at. Um, they're, of course, they're all essential. Um, so they have that on their side compared to some of us out there. But, uh, you know, they're, they're still hiring. They are actually bringing on more capacity at this time. Um, but I think this overall, this is really a, a time for us to take a step back and have time to plan for this rising trend that's coming our way. There, there's likely, especially if you're in the manufacturing industry, I, you know, I, I don't have very good news for you in the second quarter. That's just the, the fact of the matter. Reallocate your resources, look for the markets where you can, you know, try to get those lines of credit. Um, but take this time while you're slower to start planning for what's coming your way. Start training your people. You know, this is a time where you can work on some of those things while you have the time. Um, and because this rising trend's coming our way. And like I said, you don't want to miss this, this V when it, when it takes off, you know, you want to have everything in place so you can capitalize and hopefully mitigate some of the pain that we, that we're going to feel over this next quarter. <laughs> so I, I think that that would, is, is really, we're going to have a lot of time to prepare. Um, so uh, unfortunately, so I think that's, really the the perspective you have to take and certainly keeping a positive attitude all of those things we're seeing uh, being transparent with the employees uh, I know that's a, a you know a lot of our clients have said 
you know, we're being very transparent with our team. We're walking them through each step. You know, they're attending, you know, more meetings with some of the executives to understand better. So I think it's still just being that positive leader throughout this situation to make sure when we turn the corner, everyone's excited to be back, excited to, to move forward and take advantage of the rising trends. Uh, just not a whole lot of good news over the second quarter from an overall perspective. Well, the second quarter is already a third of the way over. So, um, you know, it won't be very long. Two weeks, we'll be halfway through it, and uh, we'll be able to yep. see the other side. So assuming it's going to take off on, uh, you know, July 1st at 12.01 a.m. or uh, p.m. So, well, you, Fingers crossed. Yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, relationships with your banker or your bank and lines of credit and just having access to cash. I remember that from our last conversation, cash is king, cash, cash, cash. I remember you talking about that in relation to sort of the 10 year forecast, you know, that sort of doomsday possibility or maybe even likelihood those that have cash yep. are going to are going to build and acquire and create wealth in that era. So it sounds like Nothing's changed in that regard, but what with with the banking reference and you know this PPP that's being rolled out through all the local banks and the national banks. What you know? Can you comment on that? What I think we were just talking about it four or five weeks ago. I don't even think the portal had been opened at that point for anybody to even apply, and it seems like a whole year's worth of news has occurred as it, you know as, as it surrounds that stimulus package that you were talking about as program. So how's that shaping? What, what is the impact of that been? Or is there even enough data to, uh, to, to comment on that yet? Yeah, you know, and it's great. I think the PVP and the steps that the government puts right now is fantastic. You know, we actually have a, a slide that highlights the CARES Act. It's not enough. Hmm. You know, you look at, we had to have a second round of small business loan funding. You know, I think that, don't, I, I, I'm, I don't know the exact numbers, but I believe what I was quoted was that there's 30 million small businesses here in the U.S. And in the first round of funding, only 1.6 million were able to get that funding. So, uh, and, and that's another major assumption that we're making with our forecast here is that we need to continue to receive this stimulus, not just initially, but throughout this next year. I think we're going to continue to see multiple rounds of stimulus passed because there are so many businesses that need to take advantage of it. And I know even the businesses that have taken advantage of it, several of them are saying, this is going to help us. This is going to cover us, but it's only going to cover us through June. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I think, unfortunately, we're going to need to continue to see more, not just from the government, but from the Fed you know, pulling all the different levers that they can over these next few months. So I would, you know, we kind of had CARES Act 2 pass with another round of funding. I would expect that there's a couple more rounds that are coming our way, um, which is which is great for all of us in the near term. But again, as you mentioned, that's even scarier for 2030 when we're expecting this debt situation. You know, we're just adding trillions and trillions of dollars to debt right now. That is already out of control. So while we need this now, and it's a great thing from an economic standpoint now, there's always that repercussion. And that's just making that 2030 scenario look, uh, you know, look like as, as we expected. It's really just providing even more support for that. The, the, the reckoning is, uh, is coming. Now, does that mean it's going to happen sooner or it's just going to be even more severe? No, we, we don't think it's going to happen sooner. And we, you know, I guess it's, it's 
challenging to say more severe when we're already calling for essentially Great Depression too. Um, so um, it, it, it's it's going to be it's going to be very bad. But we we don't see it coming sooner as a result of this. This is really just providing even more support for for that expectation that we have. Well, I remember when we talked last. I think the. I think the number was 1.2 trillion was what the, the word was at the time. Well, then when it was all said and done, it was 1.8 trillion, which was mm -hmm. actually passed. Well, then they just passed another, what, 500 billion. So now right, we're, right. you know, so now we're already more than double what you were saying. Guys, this 1.2 trillion is going to play a factor. I mean, it's going to have an impact. So how does more than double that in a span of, you know, one month or, you know, four and a half weeks, that, that, and, and, and more to come, you know, and that just seems, um, that just seems right. beyond my ability to really grasp the, uh, the, the true significance and impact of that. Sure. And, you know, we look at the debt to GDP ratio in a time where our GDP is not performing well, we're increasing debt, that's just going to exacerbate the situation. I mean, we were already looking at a debt to GDP ratio, according to one of our sources, that was, you know, a record high in line with World War II. So, you know, this is likely to accelerate us past our record high in terms of that debt to GDP ratio, which, uh, you know, I know I, I hear it all the time. Well, we're the United States. How come we can't just do that? Uh, well, <laughs> there is going to be repercussions. And I think what people are starting to get even more nervous about is we are going to have to try to mitigate this. We, of course, at ITR, we understand the way our politicians operate, and it's likely too late for us to make any of those decisions. But eventually, <laughs> we're, I mean, you can do two things. You can cut spending, which nobody, no candidate's ever going to run on cutting spending. Or you can raise taxes, which none of us, of course, nobody in the U.S., in general, I guess I, I shouldn't say nobody, but for the most part, we all want more money in our pocket at the end right. of the day. But as we move later in, into this decade, it almost seems like it's going to have to be inevitable that we're raising taxes in order to combat this situation, which, uh, again, I, you know, I guess, depending on what side of the aisle on you're, you're on, that's, you could be more receptive to that or not. But uh, I don't know how else we're going to pay for this thing unless we start to take some of those steps. Yeah. Well, you, you can probably delude yourself and delay the reality of math. Um, but it will eventually catch up with you. There's just, yeah. you cannot right. escape it or run from it forever. So mm -hmm. uh, it's very unforgiving. Well, that, um, well, let's, let's end on a positive note. If you could just, yeah. recap, we kind of went down that, that path, which I think is extremely useful to be reminded yet again. I think I heard from a number of people that went, whoa, that last part of the, of the podcast was not expected. I heard the words mm -hmm. great depression at the end of this decade. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that was a lot of, you know, uh, myself included, you know. Sure. Um, and, and so it's good to be anticipating reality, to be cautious, to be planning, to be uh, preparing for the inevitable um, based on, you mm -hmm. know, these models and history. Um, so that I think it's a great reminder as, as much as I'd like to ignore that or pretend like I didn't hear it. I think it's important for us to to just take stock of that. And so that's good. But I would like to, to, to definitely end on a positive note, you know, just talking about the yep. rebound, talking about the positive expectations, the forecasts have been a little bit delayed. So just, just give us the high points of what, uh, you know, what we should be preparing, preparing for this rebound. 
Absolutely. So, so again, you know, 2020, we're all likely to, to spend some time below the year ago level. And, it, you know, especially in the second and third quarter, you're going to feel a lot of weakness. But that v, once that V-shaped recovery takes off, you know, it's going to take us some time to build back to the previous rec- record levels. But as we move into late 2021 and 2022, the U.S. economy is expected to return to record levels. And that's a trend that we all need to be, be looking out for. I know it seems far away, but you, we need to start taking steps now to prepare for that rising trend so we can take advantage of it. Uh, and when you take a step back and you look at the decade as a whole, it's, it's going to be a great time to be in business in the United States. And I know that, you know, generally the way we're talking, it, it's tough to see that right now, but the trend is up over this next decade. Hmm. And we're going to have plenty of time to hit our record levels once again w- within this next decade. We're going to have a lot of time to prepare for 2030 that's coming our way. So don't, uh, you know, you know, look at the equity markets, look at, you know, building equity in a single family home. It's a great time to be in business over the next decade. We just have to hold on for another about year before we're seeing all that positivity come back again. And uh, if we if we start preparing now for 2030, like I said, this could be one of the best times of our life to create wealth. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I hope you can look at it from a, from a pot, even though it's a doom and gloom scenario, it can be a real positive perspective. You can ask all the millionaires that came out of 2008, 2009. So, uh, I figured if we sound the alarm now and we start preparing now, we should all be in a fantastic position for the next decade and beyond. That is such, such great advice. Such a great reminder. We did make it through the great depression. We made it through the great recession. Here we are. And we're, we're going to make it through this as well. It's just... It's, it's nice to have a sense of what we're going to expect, and, uh, but also to have that hope and optimism that things are going to return, and let's just not, let's not live in the here and now. Let's be looking forward and planning for, uh, for better times. And so, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on on, on pretty short notice. I, I'm so grateful for your willingness to come on and talk with us, and your perspective and your insights are just are, are so encouraging and uh, so insightful. So, so thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. I promise one of these times it'll be all good news. Fantastic. <laughs> now, if people want to uh, follow you, if they want to get in touch with you, how, how, how best should they do that? Absolutely. Uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Taylor St. Germain on LinkedIn. Our, our, check out our company website, itreconomics.com. Uh, we're, we're constant. We're very active on all the social media platforms, Twitter as well. Find us on Twitter. We're posting every single day, current events, blog posts. We have our own podcast called The Trends Talk, which is about just short five to six minute videos or, or uh, uh, podcasts every single day or uh, every single week. And that's just an update on the current events from one of our speakers or president or CEO. Um, so we're on just about every social media platform. You can find us posting every day. Fantastic. Well, Taylor St. Germain, thanks for being with us. I look forward to at least the possibility of another, uh, another conversation down the road. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, take care. You as well. Man, that was a fantastic interview. I learned so much from having Taylor on the program again. What a, uh, what a tremendous benefit to have that insight, to have that background, to have that historical perspective on what's going on right now, and honestly, to have the optimism. You know, things are going to turn around. That V-shaped recovery is exciting to me. As we look at the short term, it's really nice to have that perspective and that context to know, yeah, things are probably going to get a little bit more dicey before they get better, but when they get better, they're really going to come roaring back. So, Ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators, we got to get through this next period.
We just got to weather this short-term storm so that we can be prepared to take advantage of what is going to be probably some historically huge opportunities to profit in our businesses. So ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope you enjoyed this 99th episode of the Fab Lab podcast. I hope you will visit fabricatorsfriend.com and support our sponsor. I hope you'll visit me at aaroncrowley.com. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the Fab Lab podcast. Until then, happy fabricating. Happy fabricating.